Okay, well, this is the second week that we spent in August answering some questions, and so we're going to answer a few more. And if you're thinking, man, I need to get one in, it's too late. Uh, it's way too late. But uh, you can always study the Bible for yourself. Um, and, uh, and it's surprising how much if you, if you search for things as silver and seek for them as hidden gold, you will discover the knowledge of God as uh, Proverbs two says. So I encourage you to do that. And if you can't, you know, after digging, you haven't struck gold, you can always, um, hassle one of the pastors or elders and say, Hey, I want to know, you know, and then ask them something really hard. They like that. Um, especially the elders. Uh, anyways, well, we're going to have a, just a, a variety of fun um, things this morning to look at. And uh, um, I discovered from the first service that uh, I had to chop off in the middle of things. So I'm actually going to skip over some questions. I'll come back to them if, if by the miracle there's extra time at the end. Uh, but there probably won't be. So I'm going to start at question number two. And if you're wondering what question one was, you'll just never know. Um, ask somebody that went to the first service. All right. Here's the first question. This is just a really good question. It's a little bit technical, but it's very helpful and it's practical to every Christian. And it's this. During our two-year Hebrew study, there were many instances when the writer of Hebrews would use an Old Testament passage as proof for a concept. And in doing, he would kind of reinterpret what the passage meant. In other words, the original passage and what it meant to the original audience seemed to be totally ignored and a new meaning inserted. And so they're asking here, um, you know, what do you, what do you make of that? What do you make of when the author of Hebrews takes some Old Testament passage and quotes it and when you Take, look up that passage in the Old Testament and you study it in its context. You're thinking there is no way that the original audience could have understood the passage to mean this. And so what's going on? Because we, we trust that the author of Hebrews is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he's not in error. And so how do we deal with this kind of thing when we're studying through the Bible? So we're just going to use the author of Hebrews as an example, but there's examples like this and throughout the New Testament as well. First of all, I just want to say this. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul exhorts Timothy and really all interpreters of the Bible to be diligent to present ourselves as workmen who do not need to be ashamed Handling accurately or dividing with precision, literally cutting straight the word of truth. So there is this exhortation to interpreters to make sure you interpret the Bible accurately. So it's a big deal. As a matter of fact, I would say that the greatest sin in, in church today and, you know, kind of churchianity is misinterpreting the Bible because when you misinterpret the Bible, you then create false doctrines and false doctrines then create false behavior. 
And so it's really critical that we understand. Now, I can't give you a whole course on how to study the Bible, but you can find one online um, on our website where it gives you lessons and you can download the audio. And I would encourage you to do that. Everybody should take at least an entry level class on how to study the Bible so you can kind of understand some of the issues that are involved. But when you come to the the author of Hebrews use of Old Testament passages, you'll see some that are just straightforward quotes and you think, oh yeah, that's what they surely understood in the Old Testament and that's why he's quoting it here. Other times you're thinking, there's no way. Now some have seen those certain texts that seem to ignore what the original audience would have understood by what was written. That's the interpretation of the passage, by the way. Um, when you study the field of what is called hermeneutics or how to interpret the Bible, the goal is to try and discover what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what he wrote. That is the interpretation. Now, the interpretation is not what it means to you. That is the application of the interpretation. But the interpretation is, for instance, what did Solomon mean when he said, you know, something in Proverbs. And what would that original audience would have understand it to mean? It's not that you're looking for immediately what it means to you. That comes later in the process. The goal is to find out what God meant it to mean as he moved human authors to write his word to a specific audience. So that is um, what you're after in interpretation. Well, but some people, when they've looked at, for instance, the way certain Old Testament texts are used in the book of Hebrews, have said, aha, obviously he ignored what it meant to the original author and original audience. And since he did it, we should do the same thing. And it's called apostolic hermeneutics. To be like the apostles is really what it means. Sometimes it can be referred to as like historical redemptive interpretation. And really what it's doing is this. You go to the Old Testament. You see what it says to the original author by the original author to the original audience. And you ignore that. And then you try to figure out how that text speaks of Jesus. And even if Jesus is never mentioned in the text, you stick him in there. You read him into there. Now, you can imagine what happens when you do that. As soon as you leave the author's intent of the passage, then you have an interpretive nightmare, a free-for-all. And I'll just give you an example. Let's just say I took all the people and, you know, these first couple rows here in the middle section. I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. You know, turn to this passage in the Old Testament. It doesn't mention Jesus. But I, what I want you to do is tell me how this speaks of Jesus. Oh, oh, it's not there. Yeah, but put him in there. He's in there somewhere. Just search until you find him. Now, write down your interpretation of the text, and then each one will read it. Now, how many interpretations do you think we'll have? As many as there are people. Why? Because what's driving the interpretation? Their imagination. Because it's not objective anymore. The text isn't driving the interpretation. Your mind is. And so this is what a lot of people are doing today. Jesus in every passage, which Walt Kaiser, the great Old Testament scholar, said is not 
the Christological principle, which is the principle that Jesus is the grand theme of Scripture, but it is Christo-exclusiveness, that you just go and stick Jesus, you know, a dog returns to its vomit. Well, he's in there somewhere. See? Well, no, he's not. Um, Yes, it's his word, and yes, he's the word of God incarnate, but the passage is not about Jesus. Well, they say, if you don't mention Jesus in every passage, you're preaching like a Pharisee and they have different rocks they throw at you. The question is, though, how do they arrive at this? I mean, well, one is, is by looking at the example of New Testament authors. Another is they misinterpret a couple texts. One of them is in Luke chapter 24. Turn there, Luke chapter 24. It's a critical text and it's a good text. But if you look at Luke 24, you'll see this in verse 27. Jesus is, uh, he's, he's, he's been crucified, he's resurrected, but he hasn't ascended that yet. There's a couple of disciples who are walking on the, the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them, and, and they don't realize it's Jesus. And they're kind of grumbling and down because, you know, we were following this Jesus guy and they killed him and don't, and, and, uh, Jesus saying, so what happened? They go, man, where you been? You know, everybody's talking about this and they're kind of, you know, unloading on Jesus, but they don't realize it's Jesus. And then we read this in verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they say, notice here, all the prophets and all the scriptures, that is, that the whole Bible speaks of Jesus. Well, no, no, that's not what that's saying. What that's saying is, he started with Moses, who wrote the law, and the prophets, and he went through and explained those key texts that refer to the Messiah's death and resurrection. He didn't do an exegesis of the whole Old Testament on the road to Emmaus. He explained the key texts. Well, then, after they sit down, verse 31 says, they, they, all of a sudden their eyes are open. They realize, it's Jesus! And he disappears. Oh, I missed him. Um, so they're, they're excited, and they go, and they... Uh, meet some of the other uh, disciples. And if you go down to verse 44, Jesus appears to them uh, again in verse 44 of Luke 24. And it says, now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Usually there is the Moses and the prophets. Here is the only threefold reference to the three major Jewish categories of scripture um, in, in, in the New Testament, which you have the law of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets, uh, the Nevi'im, and the 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 Psalms, the Kituvim, I think is this, and those are the three d- Jewish designations. So he says, he says, I taught you the things which are written about me in those books, not that those books only are written about me. There's a difference between saying you can find things about me in all of these books as instead of saying everything in these books speak of me. Well, some interpret it the latter way which requires them to do this. Now, as soon as you say Jesus is in every verse of the Old Testament, when you go to the Old Testament and he's not there, then what do you do? You have to ignore what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written, and you insert your own meaning. 
And so then you get your interpretive free for all. Well, they justify it by interpreting this as meaning all. Every verse speaks of Jesus. And they say, therefore, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's just seeing Jesus in these verses and he's reinterpreting. And that's what's going on here. So the question is, is that okay for us? And the answer is no. And this is why. First, realize that the author of Hebrews references the Old Testament text in many ways. He doesn't just use the Old Testament in one way. Sometimes, for instance, he might quote a prophecy that's being fulfilled or has been fulfilled. Another time he might um, quote an Old Testament text to verify something that was taught in the Old Testament that he's teaching again. In other words, a cross-reference. Other times he might be using uh, an Old Testament quote as an example or as an illustration of something he's teaching as a parallel text or something like that. So there's not just one way he's using the Old Testament. I mean, I don't use the Old Testament in just one way. I use it in a multiple uh, different ways. And that's what he's doing. So we don't need to think that just because. And what's odd is, is though he usually uses the Old Testament in a certain way, they take the odd ways and say, this is how we should deal with every text in the Old Testament, which is kind of strange. But secondly, we don't want to do that because the author of Hebrews was inspired and we're not. This is a handy advantage he had. You know, when when men are moved by the Holy Spirit and speak from God, then that's different. But when you're interpreting the Bible, you don't get the privilege of, of you know, receiving revelation from God. You only get to deal with the revelation that's already given. And third, we must be careful not to assume that the author of Hebrews use of the Old Testament is to be used as a manual for interpreting the Bible. There's a huge danger that comes when people confuse what is described and what is prescribed. Let me just give you an example. David was a man after God's own heart. David committed adultery and David committed murder. So we should commit adultery and murder. Does that work? You say, no, I say, why not? It's in the Bible. And you go, well, yeah, but, but we need to make sure we take texts that tell us how to live morally that prescribe to us proper living and then judge those texts that are describing or narratives of what happened. You know, a young man comes to me and says, you know, I'm really wanting to get married. I said, hey, pal, look what the Benjamites did. They just waited till there was like this drinking party and a dance and they hid in the bushes and ran out and snagged a woman. It's in the Bible. It's biblical. Go for it. You see, just because it's described doesn't mean it's prescribed. And this is where a lot of people get into a lot of weird theology. They say, well, Jesus raised somebody from the dead. We should all raise people from the dead. No, no, no. That is to confuse what is described with what is prescribed. Now, granted, all scripture is profitable and there are principles in all of scripture for us. But the prescriptive text, those things that say Christians in the church are to do this or not do this are to judge those things that are described, not the other way around. And that's why people get into all sorts of weird things because they don't understand this principle. Job's friends are another example. You remember what happened? 
Um, Job's friends uh, accused Job of suffering because he had sinned, which was not true. And at the end of the book, God even says, your friends have not spoken what has been right. Now, if you read what Job's friends said, almost everything they said was right. I mean, they said a lot of great things about God, his character, about how God works. But there was this erroneous thought, this erroneous assumption that permeated everything they said. And so then God makes a blanket statement they haven't spoken what's right. So if you were interpreting Job, you need want to make sure that if you were going through what his friends said, you'd want to judge everything his friends said by other texts of scripture that specifically address those issues to verify whether it was correct or not. Because it's describing what they said. Well, in a similar way, the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sits down and he starts writing this letter. And he's sometimes thinking, you know what? When Jesus did this, it fulfilled this prophecy or it reminds me of this psalm or this is similar to this text. And so he's using it as examples, as illustrations, all sorts of things. And that's fine. And that's fine. We do the same thing. You know, sometimes I might, you know, use an Old Testament scripture and, and talk about, you know, we need to, you know, I'm talking about, let's say I'm preaching against pride. You know, we need to uh, take the arm of God's grace and like De- David and Goliath, we need to lop off the head of our pride. Well, that didn't reinterpret the passage. I'm using what is called biblical illusion i'm alluding to things you're familiar with and making illusion but i if you say was that the interpretation of the passage no i'm just that was just an illusion the interpretation of the passage is then i go to the context and find out what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written so this is what's happening. And a lot of times when people study, especially when you're reading commentators today, you will see that a lot of them have bought into, well, because the authors of scripture do it, we can do it type approach, which of course is not good. Turn to Hebrews chapter one, and we'll just point out a few examples here. It would be fun to go through the whole book, but as you know, we would be here a long time. The author of Hebrews has some great things to say. And a lot of people studied the book last year. A lot of the women's studies and other people did it. And so this is a a good example. But look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. And in most Bibles you'll see it's all indented there and in caps. Because that's uh, from verse 5 all the way down through verse 13. Are a whole bunch of uh, Old Testament quotes that speak of Jesus. Now, there's Psalm 2-7 is a well-known messianic text. It's quoted. 2 Samuel 7-14, the Davidic covenant is quoted. Um, Psalm 97-7 is quoted. It's a well-known messianic text. All that seems to be good until you get down towards the end where it starts talking. Uh, he starts moving and starts talking about messianic texts and angels because he's trying to show that Christ is better than the angels. And so he's referencing some things. And when you get down to his quotation of Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7, you start thinking, hmm. I mean, if you go back and you look at that psalm, you'll see that, is that speaking of Jesus? Would the original author 
have known it spoke of Jesus? Would the original audience would have understood it that way? And I think so, because it speaks as one who is a groom, who is king, who is the anointed one, and who is referred to as God. Now, if you, if you, if you think about it, okay, who's like a groom, who's a king, who's the anointed one, who is also God? That would kind of clue you in that that's probably the Messiah. So even that, with a little bit of study, is pretty clear. However, if you were to go through the book, and again, we don't have time to do it, you would find some texts that are like, wow, how could they have understood that one? That is an odd use. Well, each text needs to be studied in its own context, and you need to realize that sometimes the author of Hebrews is going to quote to have fulfillment, illustration, example, allusion, and being inspired, the old, uh, the author of Hebrews can quote the Old Testament and tell us things that the author, the human author and human audience back then could not have understood, but he knows the main author, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, yeah, and it also meant this. And so if the Holy Spirit does that, then praise God for the Holy Spirit. But to think that you can do the same thing, um, not being inspired is an error. So it's best to stick with what the text says, what it meant to the original audience, and then let not let our imagination go wild. Now, I just want to explain just one other little concept because this is so critical. Let's say, and this is a common, let me give you a common example of an Old Testament text that's often used. Um, uh, here's a good one. Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. Now, a lot of times I've heard that taught as, let's go to Joseph, the story of Joseph and, and Potiphar's wife puts the move on him and then he flees from immorality and it teaches us um, by example that we need to flee immorality. Okay? That text is a narrative in the midst of a very large narrative which shows us how God moved Joseph from being a shepherd to ruler all, all of all Egypt. And that was just one of the incidences in Joseph's life to get him from point A to point B. That is the meaning of the text. That is the interpretation. It's one of the links in the chain of how God moved him from point A to point B. And he had to be pursued so he could be framed for rape, so he could be thrown into prison, so he could interpret the dream. So then later on, he could interpret Pharaoh's dream, so he could be made ruler of Egypt. So that is the the interpretation. However, it's a great example, isn't it? And we know from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and verse 11, that the things are written in the Old Testament were written for our, our example. So if you wanted to find a prescriptive text that said flee immorality, you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, which talks about immorality. And verse 18 says, flee from immorality to Christians in the church. Now, knowing that's true in Corinthians, we can say when we're in Genesis, now we're going to look at the story of Joseph. And in the story of Joseph, we see how God sovereignly moves him from being a shepherd to ruler of Egypt. And one of the incidences in his life is a good illustration of what is taught in 1 Corinthians 6. That's different than saying, Moses wrote this to try and teach us to flee from immorality. It's just, it's just a story that happened. 
And if we aren't careful, then pretty soon Moses wrote this to teach us how to interpret dreams. See? Yeah. Moses wrote this to let us all know we need to get a job as a slave for Potiphar. You see, that doesn't work, and we can't just pick things out and that suit our fancy and then try and apply them. So that's what we're talking about, and that's what happens when um, you don't realize some of the, the, the critical issues related to interpretation, and that's why we teach people how to study the Bible here, and the information is waiting for you. But let me just leave you with three things. James warns us in James 3.1 that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. As we noted earlier, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15 to handle accurately the word of truth. And Peter warns in 2 Peter 3 verse 16 of those who twist and distort the scriptures. And we don't want to be those. And so we want to be very careful as we handle the scriptures. And we want to have objective interpretation, not subjective. That is, look at the text and see what it says. Once we understand what it meant to the original audience, then we can say, and these are principles that I can apply to myself. But we don't start with me and go backwards. Or we don't start with the New Testament and freight that New Testament truth into the Old Testament until we first understand what the Old Testament meant in its own context. Okay, um, three, or actually this is two because we skipped number one. Um, in John 12, turn to John 12. This is a fun one too. John chapter 12. Very good question. John chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Jesus uses the analogy of a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying in order to grow. To say that we need to die to self and to hate our life in this world so that we can bear the fruit of salvation. If this is so, how is this same analogy applicable to helping our kids die to self, hate their life in this world, and claim Christ? So, here we are in John 12, and I just want to show you some things. Now, I'm going to ask you a question here just to test your, your Bible study skills here. I want you to answer this in your mind. You don't have to say it out loud so you won't be embarrassed if you got it wrong. But here's the question and just answer this in your mind. Whenever we come to the Bible and we see a metaphor or a simile or an illusion, the first thing we do is... You got the answer? The answer is the first thing we do is we consider the literal meaning of that metaphor, simile, or illusion. In other words, Jesus says, I am the door. And we ask ourselves, so what is a door anyways? What does a door do? And we say, well, a door is usually a slab of wood. It's on a hinge. It separates one room or area from another. It's a passageway. You have to go through the door to get from here to there or from there to here again. Now, once we talk about the literal meaning of that, then we're ready to understand the spiritual parallels. But you start with the literal meaning. So here, Jesus is going to use, we're going to look at it in just a second, this whole idea of wheat. He says in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, you know, I know that all of you who have grown up in the city see those 
combines out there harvesting the wheat every fall. You're very familiar with this. But let me just remind us all in case somebody's visiting from Nebraska. Um, this is how it is. Uh, usually what they do for wheat is in the fall, after they've grown whatever summer crop they have, they plow up the field, they level it, and uh, then they plant what is called winter wheat. And then that seed is just in the ground. They don't water it or whatever. And then it starts getting cold in the fall and they'll start watering. And, and it just kind of lies dormant. It has a dormant period, but it gets wet. And then in, it just lies there all winter long. And then in the spring, as it starts warming up, the wheat sprout. And it looks kind of like grass. I mean, it just looks like thick braided, bladed grass when it's small. And then it starts growing up and it gets to be larger and larger and And eventually, uh, it's very much alive. It starts putting on heads of grain. And towards the end of the summer, the farmers, uh, uh, they don't water it. And it just starts getting dry and brown. And it's golden and ripe for harvest. The big heads of grain are kind of bending the tops of the stalks over. And it is dry and brittle. And the plant is very much dead. So not only is the plant dead, but the seed appears to be dead. We know from science that there's actually life in that little seed, but to them, it was dead too. Now, if the grain stays in that position, dried up and bent over, it will never reproduce itself. The grain has to fall to the earth and be buried before it can be resurrected to life. You following? Now, look at verse 23. This is the near preceding context of what was asked about. And this is a cool passage because it relates to both what comes before and after. But in verse 23, Jesus answered and saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then he gives the little analogy of it is necessary that grain fall to the earth and dies and remains alone. And if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what, what does it mean the son of man is going to be glorified? He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be buried. And then he's going to be what? Resurrected on the third day and bear much fruit. Correct? But then right after that, if you look at verse 25, he not only relates it to Jesus, Jesus' death burial and resurrection he also talks to about believers and uses the same illustration for what proceeds and comes after verse 25 he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal if anyone serves me he must follow me and where i am there my servant will be also anyone serves me the father will honor him so what's cool about here is he says listen you need to die to self to what you want to do and your control of your own life and let christ take control let his word guide you live for his glory and if you're willing to die to self you will bear much fruit so both of those Work And both of them are pretty cool when you look at them and you understand how wheat works. So everybody in that culture would go, yeah, that's a no-brainer. But if you're in the city, it may be a little difficult. So the allergy is unique. It refers to Jesus. Now, the question is, um, how specifically, since it does relate to believers losing their life, hating their life in this world to keep it, how, how are we going to 
take this little analogy and maybe apply it to training our children to die to self and to live their life, not for the sinful pleasures of the world, but for the glory of God. And the answer is this, lead them to Christ. Lead them to Christ. Uh, You know, there is this thought, I think, today that if your child says they're a Christian and goes to church and doesn't want to go to hell, therefore they're saved. Even though they may love the world and the things of the world and they're constantly pining not for the things of God, but for the things of the world. There is kind of a deception there, you know. If I stand in front of a huge classroom of little kids and describe the terrors of hell and fire and flame and weeping and gnashing of teeth and say, how many people want to go to hell? And they all look with terror on their face. And they said, and how many people want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. How many of them are going to raise their hand? All of them. I want to go to heaven. They go, how many people want to ask Jesus in your heart? Yeah. Okay, pray with me. And I lead them in the sinner's prayer and they're all saved, right? Wrong. Probably none of them got saved. Why? Because people don't get saved by praying the sinner's prayer. They get saved by the grace of God, hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit attending the gospel so that they repent and are born again. So their lives are transformed by God's saving grace. And they are not the same. From the inside. Recently I was reading. uh, I'm still reading it. But um, Heroes by Ian Murray. Which is a book about uh, different missionaries and preachers uh, in England. Who made a huge impact on the world for Christ. And one of them was Thomas Charles of Bala. And it talks about in his ministry. As he started teaching children uh, to read. And and they were coming to Christ. How Some of the children were staying up all night to read the Bible. They they had never heard the Bible. Nobody had ever taught them anything about the Bible. They were starving for it. It was like as soon as they were born again, they just like hungered and thirsted for the true milk of the word. And and they would just, you know, people come up and go, well, I see you're fulfilling your duty. Duty? But I love this. And these are young children. He said with a little bit of training, These five-year-olds were memorizing entire books of the Old Testament. Now, when we hear that, we think, man, that is... I mean, you're, you're, you're making salvation out to be like a transformed life. I mean, you're kind of describing salvation like somebody becomes a new creature and old things pass away and all things become new. You're kind of like acting like this whole grace thing really radically changes you. Exactly. And it does. And I think we do our children a disservice when we as parents don't want to think of them going to hell. So we give them a false assurance that they're saved when they're not. When there's no fruit in their life that they love the Lord or the things of the Lord. They're just moral church kids who... According to statistics, almost 90% of those moral church kids then go apostate after they leave home. And so we need to be careful not to treat our children like that. We need to say, listen, we'll know you're saved if we see the transformed life, not the words. Anybody can say a lot of things. Yeah, I'm a Christian. It's like, you know, putting USDA choice approved beef on them, you know, a sticker. 
You know, it's like, okay, Christianity isn't a sticker. It's the work of God in your life. So you're changed and you're different. And all of a sudden you start wanting things you never wanted before. You start thinking things you never thought before. And when you do sin, you, you feel bad. And, and when you're learning things, you feel good. And you feel like you have a relationship with God that you can talk to him whenever you want. And he's there and he's listening and you know he is. And you read the Bible and everything's so cool. There you go. There you go. So I'd say that if you want to help your kids escape the world... The first thing, make sure they know the Lord. Why? Because then they'll have the Holy Spirit in them. And God, from within your child, will drive them to pursue the things of God, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, as a byproduct of their being transformed by God's grace. Secondly, let's just say your children are older and you're pretty sure they know the Lord, but you know, as we know, there's just a constant bombardment to the things of the world, you know, clothes and, and entertainment and, you know, pornography and just indulgence and selfishness. It's just all around us in the world. And now your, your child's trying to navigate through that in high school or junior high or college. And, and you know, you want to protect them. And you can, and one of the things you can do to help them be strong so they can stand up against these things and notice these things is to help them become disciplined in the godly disciplines. And what I mean by the godly disciplines are, um, it's usually a phrase used to describe those things God gives us that through which he dispenses grace into our life. I, I just, just last week I was in Washington and and one of the things that happens when I brush my teeth here and I drink water, I try not to swallow any because it's the water here is pretty bad. I mean, compared to what I'm used to and still what I'm swishing around, I think, I don't know what's in there, but it just, it just doesn't taste like the real thing. But when I went to my brother's house and in, in Bremerton, Washington, and I brushed my teeth and I went to rinse out my mouth, I was like, oh, and I was just drinking it in. It's like, oh, it's so good. And then, you know what happens if you drink a whole bunch of water before you go to bed at night. But anyways, I won't get into that. Um, <laughs> it was great. I just wanted to keep drinking and drinking. It was great. And that's how it is when you, when you know God and the Spirit's in you and you're reading His Word. You just want to drink it in and drink it in and drink it in. And you know what? It changes you. It changes you. And, and other things God gives us, fellowship, discipleship groups, corporate worship, prayer, all of these things are what the Puritans called means of grace because they are good gifts given to believers to help them grow in the Lord. Yes, there is the power of the Holy Spirit working behind the scenes to transform you, but it's always in conjunction with these means of grace. So if you want to help your child see right from wrong, good from evil, to be strong, to resist temptation, get them reading the Bible faithfully, praying faithfully, sharing their faith faithfully, serving in the church faithfully, corporate worship faithfully. All of those things make a strong believer. So when they go out there, they go, I'm not doing that. Why? Because God's word says this and it wouldn't honor the Lord. And so make sure that you train them up. Now, what if your children are younger and let's say they, maybe they don't know the Lord or you don't know if they know the Lord. I mean, you know, it's really hard. I granted, you know, even if they break down and they cry and they feel sorry for their sin and, and you tell them the gospel and they seem to understand it and they say they want to become a believer and they pray or whatever. Sometimes you think, I don't know, because after that they still are 
worry me. And believe me, just like you keep worrying God. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're a mystery sometimes. You just don't know. So let's say you don't know. Um, if you don't see a fruit of a transformed life, then you keep after him in evangelism. But still, you teach them how to live as a Christian. You go, well, what if they don't know Christ? You teach them how to live as a Christian because you know they're coming to Christ. You believe they're coming to Christ. You're praying that they get saved. You're trusting in the Lord. So you teach them how to pray. You teach them how to serve. You teach them how to read their Bible. You teach them in the way they should go. You train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And you encourage them in that way. You know, when you're out and about, you say, did you see that a modestly dressed woman? Why do you think that woman dresses that way? What do you think's going on in her mind? Do you think that honors the Lord? It's like, look at that. Did you see that person just throw trash out their window? Why do they do that? What does that tell us about that person? Is that loving your neighbor? Is that obeying the authorities? You we're constantly bringing them when we see life situations to the word. So they're able to go, oh, oh, they're always getting the word in contrast to what they're seeing or an admonition of what they're seeing in the world. You say, see that person over there? Say, watch what they're doing. See how they're reaching out to that person, that new person at the church? No, just watch them. Watch them. They'll just walk over there. Let's just kind of turn our backs and listen in on the conversation. Do you see that? Do you see how they asked them their name? They just kept asking them question after question. Why? They want to know about them. They have an interest in them. They're pursuing that person. Yeah, they could walk over. Why, why wouldn't that person just walk over and just talk with some people they always know? Because they love people. And they're pursuing that person. See, life is just full of situations like that where you can bring in the scriptures and teach your children how to abstain from the world. I've been reading John Plowman's talk by C.H. Spurgeon, and I would encourage you to read it. It is so good. I always wanted to read it, and I finally started. I'm so glad I did. It's little essays, and he writes under the pen name of John Plowman. He uses all these farm illustrations, and they're little essays of three to five pages where he, he writes them just to kind of communicate basic truths to simple folk, and he uses a lot of funny little illustrations. But... Each one has a different theme, and one of them on the home, he says this. Home is no home where the children are not in obedience. It is rather a pain than a pleasure to be in it. Happy is he who is happy in his children, and happy are the children who are happy in their father. All fathers are not wise. Some are like Eli and spoil their children. Not to cross our children is the way to make a cross of them. Those who never give their children the rod must not wonder if their children become a rod to them. Solomon says, correct your son and he shall give you rest. Yes, he shall give delight to your soul. I am not clear that anybody wiser than Solomon lives in our time, though some think they are. Young colts must be broken in or they will make wild horses. Some fathers are all fire and fury filled with passion at the smallest fall. This is worse than the other and makes home a little hell instead of a heaven. No wind makes the miller idle, but too much upsets the mill altogether. Men who strike in their anger generally miss their mark. When God helps us to hold the reins firmly, but not to hurt the horse's mouths, all goes well. 
When home is ruled according to God's word, angels might be asked to stay the night with us and they would not find themselves out of their element, end quote. That's just an example of the kind of thing you need to do. You need to find that balance of love and discipline to make your, your home a little heaven where your children love you, but they respect you. They obey you and are not rebellious. You know, you, those are hard things to do. And, you know, I just don't know why it is, but why can't every child be the same? God always gives you three of a different kind. At least he did us or however many you have. They're all different. You know, and there's no formula that, you know, well, you do these 10 things and they all turn out well. You know, you've got this one who, who just tells you everything. This one tells you nothing. This one's super clean. This one's super messy. You know, this one always follows through. This one always needs reminded. You know, what, what is that? What is that? They're all different. And you know, you fight to try and deal with each child according to their own way to bring them up just as God would have them. And when you finally become experts at parenting, they leave home. I mean, what's with that? <laughs> and then they leave home and, and you're like, yeah, I'm an expert in parenting now. I know all the things I should have done and didn't do and all the things I did right. But now I don't have any kids. And then the grandkids come and you spoil them rotten. I mean, that is twisted. But in a nutshell, pray for your children, evangelize your children, train them in the way they should go, be a good example to them, and if they love the Lord, they won't love the world. And the more they love the Lord, the more they won't love the world. Five, much is made. Uh, This is actually four. Sorry, I keep getting them off because I cut that one off. Maybe I'll go back. No, probably not. Um, Much is made as it should be of the name of Jesus. We are to pray in Jesus' name, fellowship in Jesus' name, call upon Jesus' name for our needs, especially into salvation. So what was the pronunciation of Jesus' name as he and the disciples used it? Was it actually Jesus or as the Hebrew has it, Yeshua? Was Jesus's name translated? Does it or should it matter? You know, when I meet him in heaven, I want to get it right. So someone's name, of course, represents all that they are. You know, when the police come and they bang on your door, if their guns drawn, they open up in the name of the police. What they're saying is, I am knocking on your door in the name and the authority of the police and all that the police represents is at your door. So when you invoke the name of Jesus, you're invoking the name of God, of man, of Lord, of Savior, and everything Jesus is. So it's not a light thing. That's why using the Lord's name in vain is a huge deal. So that's what a name is. Now, the Hebrew word for Jesus, as you mentioned, is Yeshua. Or Joshua in the English. Joshua is really the name of Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. So in the Hebrew it would be Yeshua. Or in the English, Jesus. Now in the Greek, the Greek, um, Iesus is the Greek equivalent of Yeshua or Joshua. And that's how we pronounce Jesus um, in the English. So you can call him Yeshua. You can call him um, Jesus. You know, you can call him, you know, Joshua. Um, all those things work fine. The disciples often called him Rabbi. Uh, uh, they called him uh, Epistates. 
master. Um, any of those things work. You could also use, you know, Messiah, Christ, Alpha and Omega, Saver, Redeemer, Righteous Branch of David, Word of God, Lamb of God, Suffering Servant, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I mean, any of those work. I think when you meet Jesus, you will refer to him as either Lord or King. And if you get it wrong, he will forgive you, which is good. All right. Six. Why are there two creation stories in Genesis 1, 26 and Genesis 2, 7? The answer, there isn't. But liberal theologians have often accused uh, the writer of Genesis of narrating two totally different creation accounts. Turn there, turn to Genesis, the end of Genesis 1, and I'll just show you how this is. It's not a huge mystery, but rock throwers are always after to discredit the Bible. So in Genesis chapter 1, you start with the first day, 1-1, one, one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes down, it says what God did on all those different days, all the way down to the sixth day. The sixth day is then recorded in verses 26 through 31. It's the day when God created man, male and female. And uh, verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So if you read the context, it's very clear that God created man on the sixth day. Voila. That's pretty easy. Broad overview of creation. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, it talks about God resting on the Sabbath. Not a problem. Then in verses 4 and following is when people say, aha, different creation account. No, this is just an expansion in more detail of what happened on the sixth day of creation because it describes in detail the day when God created men and women, which we know from... Chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, happened on the sixth day. Since man is a key player in the creation story, God spends a whole chapter discussing the creation of both man and woman and what happened that day. So there aren't two creation accounts. There's just one, and um, that's pretty easy to solve. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be getting into Genesis next fall. And when that happens, we will totally blow out um, the, uh, the creation account in probably more detail than you ever wanted to know. All right. The next one, which is six, um, uh, Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33 is one of the most wonderful places in scripture to speak of the future of the nation Israel. Jeremiah 31 is quoted by Paul in Romans 11. Can you please elaborate on the extent of Paul's statements in Romans 11 verses 25 and 26, especially all Israel will be saved. Is this fulfillment in the millennial kingdom? So, again, one of those tricky, you know, five questions in one questions. And uh, first, in Jeremiah 30 through 33, especially 3031, has the statement of the new covenant that God would, would put his spirit in them, that uh, he would write his law in their hearts, and he would cause them to walk in his way, and, and, and they would be his people, and he would be their God. So this is the new covenant promise, the very one when Jesus in the upper room said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the same one um, that Jesus was referring to. So there's that. And Paul then refers to this. So turn to Romans 11, which is a critical text because it teaches us about the future of the nation of Israel. 
Now, there are some, like those in the millennial camp, who believe that Israel, yeah, had a time, and they were God's people, and God was reaching out to them. But there came a time after they rejected God so many times and finally rejected the Messiah that God has rejected them as a nation. That there are a few Jews being saved and included in the church, but now the church is the new Israel of God. And they get that phrase from Galatians 6.16, the new Israel of God, though is not speaking of Gentiles and Jews in the church, but Jewish believers only, and as the context reveals. But they say it's the, the church is now the new Israel. So all the promises that were made to Israel, the good things are all going to be fulfilled in the church, but all the curses get to be upon the Jews, which is kind of an odd concept, isn't it? Jews get all the dregs and curses and we get all the blessings. Um, so that's really what is going on. However, um, you say, well, you know, is there anything that might seem to indicate that the Jews have been kind of rejected once for all? Yes, especially in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. There is the parable of the, the labors in the vineyard. And I'll just remind you of what it was. Uh, um, the This owner has a vineyard. He, he hires these people, these laborers to take care of his vineyard while he's away. And uh, they start mistreating his vineyard. And so he sends some servants to kind of get an account and they beat the servants. He sends more and they kill him. And finally he says, you know what? I'm going to send my own son. And so when he sends his own son, thinking they will respect him, they end up killing him. Well, the whole thing is a picture of, of Jesus and the, and the Jewish leaders and the prophets. Remember um, the, in, in, in Isaiah chapter five, God refers to Israel as his vineyard. And so there's kind of an allusion to Isaiah five and the Jewish leaders were to take spiritual care of the nation of Israel. And when they started failing, God sent the prophets. And what did they do to the prophets? They beat them, cast them outside and killed some of them. And then God sent his son and they would kill him too. Now, as Jesus is explaining this to them, they're kind of appalled at what's happening because they don't really see the ambush, the parable coming. And Jesus, you know, kind of very nonchalantly asks them, so, uh, you know, what do you think should happen uh, to those vineyard keepers? And the Jewish leaders say he should bring those wretches to a wretched end. And right after they say that, bing, they realize he's talking about us. And he even says, and he, they understood that he had spoken the parable against them. And then comes our text, which says in verse 43 of, of Matthew 21, therefore I say to you, speaking to the Jewish leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, speaking of the Gentiles, who will produce the fruit of it. In other words, the Jews, in rejecting Christ, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them and salvation will be offered to the Gentiles who will believe and will produce the fruit of the gospel. And you may say, well, aha, there it is. There it is. They're rejected and the Gentiles have taken their place. And you know what? If you only had that passage, you might come to that conclusion. However, however, there's more than just that at stake. There is no doubt that since the first century, though, most of the, the first converts to the church were Jews in Jerusalem. 
Then after that, it became more and more Gentile converts because the Jews hardened their heart against Christ. And now mostly Gentiles are coming to Christ with the remnant of Jews. Now, what I want to do is I want to go through Romans 11. I'm going to read portions and just summarize portions. so We can kind of see a survey of the passage to answer this question. What does it mean when it says all Israel will be saved? And when does that happen? Okay, look at Romans 11, verse 1. And we're just going to quickly rifle through this. So it's an exceedingly fun passage. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be. Now, right there, you know the Jews have not been what? Rejected. I mean, he says it. And he uses the strongest negative phrase, may it never be in the Greek language. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He says it again. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah and how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. I mean, he's talking about a period of great apostasy and Elijah's like, I'm the only believer in all Israel. So that's what's going on. But what is the divine response to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So he says, granted, Paul, even though a lot of Gentiles are coming to Christ, there's still a remnant of believing Jews. And then he goes on to describe how Israel has missed the kingdom because they tried to enter by works and you just can't enter by works. And he quotes a few texts to establish that. Look at verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble. So as to fall, did they? May it never be. So they haven't totally fallen permanently. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? Notice he says, will their fulfillment be? He's anticipating the Jews are going to have a fulfillment right now. Yes, they have been rejected, set aside. Uh, A hardening has happened for a time so that the gospel is able to come to the Gentiles and the Jews see all these Gentiles using their book, reading their scriptures, studying their prophets and talking about their Messiah. And they're going, hey, what's going on here? I mean, all you Christians are all psyched up about our book. And then some of the Jews are going to be drawn to Christ that way. But there still is going to be a fulfillment that comes after that. In the future, they have a fulfillment. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection, the rejection of the Jews, is the reconciliation of the world, that is, to all these Gentiles around the world, what would their acceptance be from life from the dead? He says, oh yeah, they're going to be accepted in the future. They're still going to be accepted. Look down at verse 23. He talks about uh, um, in between. uh, He used this analogy of grafting. And the whole idea is there's the the Abrahamic covenant and Christ, which I think is the the stock, the natural stock of this this olive tree. And he talks about the Jews because of their their rejection, you know, getting the, the grafting knife and they're cut off and pitched to the side. 
And then some, some Gentiles are carefully grafted into that stock. So now they're drawing from the Abrahamic covenant and the blessings that are in Christ, which were originally intended for the Jews because of their rejection. They've been cut off. He says, don't get proud because you're an olive, a wild olive branch, and you could be snipped off and thrown off too. And those Jews can be grafted back in. So he uses a little... Um, Description there just to let us know about uh, the grafting of those things. So then he says, look at verse 23. And they also, speaking of the Jews, if they do not continue in, in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in. So now he says, if they don't, well, well that didn't seem very certain. But look down at verse 25. He says, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery... So that you will not be wise in your own estimation, he's speaking of Gentiles, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, what's cool about it is he makes it very clear here. Their hardening is partial. It's until the Gentiles that God has chosen to save are brought in and then All Israel will be saved. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean every Jew will be saved. You say, well, how do you know that? Because when you look at the preceding context, he makes it clear that the, he describes the Jews as a remnant in verse five. And then in Romans 9, 27 as a remnant. And in verse seven as those who were chosen and the rest are hardened. But you may think, well, but Jack, but just how many? How many, though, is a remnant? Well, we don't have time to turn there because we've already gone over. But in Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9, um, it describes what happens. Let me just read you the little prophecy. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And who's that referring to? Jesus. It's quoted of Jesus in the New Testament. And then it goes and it goes to the future to talk about what's going to happen right before Jesus comes. Listen to this. It will come about in all the land, the land of Israel, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, The Lord is my God. So one third of the Jews living at the end of the tribulation will all be saved. So all those God has chosen and a third of those right before the second coming of Christ. That's how many. Well, we're out of time plus five minutes. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the patience of everyone here as we rifled through these questions. They are fun. I pray that we would all enjoy studying and that these times of question and answer would provoke us to dig into the Bible, to find out what it means and what it says and to solve those mysteries in our mind. 
Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for godly men who have come before us to interpret the Scriptures. May we study diligently to show ourselves approved as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.